transit will become more individualized. Mobility will become more individualized. Um, Micro transit, autonomous vehicles um, will be tuned to you and your needs. Uh, It really is the way it has to go, right? I mean, they're never going to replace you know, the subway, et cetera. But I think that's the next phase of our, of our uh, evolution as an industry. We already see it. It's just taking yeah. it to the next level. So individualized transit. Um, the, the guys from Transdev used to say it's pace, personalized, autonomous, um, something that's connected, connected, connected and electric. electric. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I, I generally agree with that. I think that was a great acronym. Uh, so that's one. Two, I think we're going to take to the air. Now, you know, people uh-huh. can call these the Lexus lanes. You know, people are always upset about when you add in a pay lane on a beltway around a city and you're like, well, you know, that's the Lexus lanes. It's only for the rich people. But you know what? I get all that, but it does take vehicles off of the lanes that I'm in because I'm mm. not going to pay 30 bucks to ride that green line lane, but I am going to stay in here. And if you can take <laughs> some cars off and make my life easier, I don't mind. So the air lanes are the same way, right? We're not all going to be able to afford that, but I predict by 2030, for $49, you'll be able to get a vehicle. Uh, to, now, it depends on where inflation goes, but let's say uh, in $2022. <laughs> I was saying $99. Let's stick with my $99. For $99, you'll be able to call the VTOL, the electric unmanned vehicle, to your front yard in my house. I want to okay. see it right out that window. And I'm going to get in that vehicle, and it's going to take me to downtown Washington, D.C., which you know to fly is probably only 20 minutes from where I live. And drop me at the roof of the DOT building for a meeting with then Secretary Jaspal Singh or whoever it is. <laughs> gonna be and uh, I'll be able to go in there for my meeting and then get picked up and brought back here. So I don't have to go in all the traffic. That's, I think, vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, I think, are going to happen. Will be reality. Yeah. Welcome to the Mobility Innovators Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Mobility Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Jaspal Singh. Mobility Innovator Podcast invites key innovators in the transportation and logistics sector to share their experience and future forecasts. In this episode, we'll be discussing the future of public transportation and key mobility trend in North America region. Our today guest is a transit evangelist and has spent his career in government and public transportation. He's currently working as a senior vice president and Chief Customer Officer at Motexo. He worked as a County Administrator for two suburban counties in Maryland. Later, he worked as a CEO of MTA Maryland. He's an author of four books, including The Future of Public Transportation and his recent book, The Conversation of Equity and Inclusion in Public Transportation. Also, he is a popular host of Transit Unplugged podcast and Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube. I'm so happy to welcome my good friend, Paul Comfort, Senior Vice President and Chief Customer Officer at Motexo. Now it's time to listen and learn. Hello, Paul. It's great to have you on the show and looking forward to learning from your experience. Thanks, Jasper. Great to be great to be with you on your podcast. And uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the last few months. Same here. I mean, it's uh, I'm following you, what you're doing, your podcast, your interviews and your knowledge, what you're spreading all over the world. So today, what I want to do, I want to spend time with you to get know more about you because there are a lot of hidden secrets and about your new book, which is you published recently about equity and inclusion. And then your thought on innovation in public transport sector, man, you got so much of knowledge uh, collected from all over the world. So I would love to have uh, more knowledge from you about what's happening in public transport sector and what we can do. But to start with, 
I know you are very vocal about everything in your profile. Your LinkedIn profile is so rich. You are so active on LinkedIn. But is there anything hidden or secret which still people don't know about you? And I would love to know more, like some part of Paul Comfort which people are not aware about. <laughs> sure, uh, I can try. Um, I am, like you said, I kind of live my life out loud. Uh, that's just the way I'm. I am as a person, and so it actually fits. The job I have, which is to be, uh, you know, a persona in the industry. Um, I mean, I was thinking about that question because you told me you were going to ask it to me ahead of time, and I thought here's a couple things that maybe people don't know. Number one uh, is that I had a radio show part time called Comfort Corner on WCTR AM fifteen thirty in Chestertown, Maryland, for sixteen years, uh, and it it was kind of like if people who've been around for a while may remember a guy named Paul Harvey, news and comment. Yeah. Uh, and it was kind of like a news and comment show, but more local news. So mm. for a while, I even did it live uh, in the window of Callahan's Gas and Appliance in downtown Centerville. <laughs> and I would interview, you know, local celebrities, the county commissioner, or, you know, somebody from um, the military who had just come back from overseas and those kind of things. And I did it uh, part-time just because I love radio. Um, so that, so that kind of what that Jasper, actually, that's what led me to doing the podcast. When they asked me here, uh, at this job, would you like to do a podcast? I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the new talk radio. Oh yeah. So that's, that's something I think, uh, a lot of folks, uh, know that I'm in music. Um, uh, so that's been one of my passions in life. Um, and I had a band when I was younger, um, and we toured and made a record when I was in college, the band was called sons of thunder and we had a full band, you know, with backup singers and, you know, light crew and sound crew and all that stuff. But to be honest with you, Jaspel, uh, when we were, that was like when we were in college, you know, and then my rhythm guitar player, Zeke, uh, Ezekiel, he got married and we, you know, we were like, <laughs> are we really going to do this or not? Because real life is coming. And you yeah. know what? We decided we weren't really going to do it. That you know, mm -hmm. we weren't going to try to go full time. We weren't that good. I mean, we were, you know, in our own minds, we were good, but we weren't that good. And, we, and uh, it, it ties in with something I posted on LinkedIn this last weekend, which is uh, I'm reading uh, Bono's autobiography, the guy, you know, the lead singer from U2. Okay. He talked about when he was 18, his father said to him, you know, you, you need to get a job. And he's like, job, a job is what you do five or six days a week, eight hours a day to make money, to do what you really want to do on the weekends. And he said, I knew I didn't want to, I wanted to stay as far away from that <laughs> as possible. But he said, I was smart enough, even at my age to realize that if I'm going to do something fun and be able to get somebody to pay me for it, I've yeah. got to be really good at it. And he said, I wasn't good at anything. <laughs> and uh, and he was smart enough to realize that. And I think we were too with our band. You know, we realized, you know, we're not that great. There's so many great musicians out there, but we did have fun. And I've had fun with my whole life. I play some in church and, and uh, play for shows. Both my boys are musicians, pretty good, actually, guitar and drum. I'm actually going to be playing with them at uh, Colt Classic Brewery. Uh, they have an open mic night coming up soon here before Christmas. I think I'll do a show with them. Okay. So, um having some fun with that. Uh, one or two other things that I thought maybe people will be interested in uh, and that is interesting from my background. Right out of college, I had a bunch of great interviews for fun jobs. Uh, I had spent a lot of my youth real active in politics and government. And the Speaker of the House of Representatives here in uh, in Maryland, the Speaker of the House of Delegates, Clay Mitchell, uh, had been kind of a mentor of mine. His son and I are pretty good friends. And he got me an interview to be a speechwriter for the governor at the time, who was a guy named William Donald Schaefer. 
And so I went in and got the interview and was offered the position, but I turned it down, Jasper. Oh. And it's one of those lessons in life. You know, it's such an idiot when you're a kid. Uh, you know, uh, I was thinking, I remember telling them, you know, I don't want to be behind the, you know, the speeches. Same. I want to be out front, you know, doing it, giving things and being involved. And, and uh, what an idiot I was, you know, <laughs> think about where my <laughs> life could be now if I started out at 22 as a speech writer for, at the time, a very popular governor. But Young people, you know, we and I think that's a lesson that I try to tell my kids. I have six kids um, with my wife. who I've been married to 35 years now this month. Um, but, uh, you know, you don't always start right where you want to end up. You know, <laughs> you got to get your foot in the door and then get really good. And then you can maneuver yourself to where you want to go. And I guess that's the last kind of thing from my life is um, I've been involved in politics since I was young. I was I wanted to make a difference. That Jasper is my. Yeah mantra for my life. I want to make a difference and impact as many people for good as I can. And I felt like I could do that in government. My dad was a minister. I never really felt called, if you want to use that word, to go into, you know, full-time what they call ministry, you know, in a pastor in a church and like that. But I felt like I could do it in government. And yeah. um, and so I've run for office three times. Huh. Something from my background, you know, I won for central committee, but lost for uh, county commission. Uh, and then I ran again in... Um, in 2002, I ran for office uh, state's attorney, uh, and I lost for that. Um, and then I ran in 2014 for county commissioner and won for that as a top vote getter. But the the moral of the story, and I wrote a chapter in my book, Full Throttle, about this, yeah. uh, is that every time I've run for office, win or lose, something great has come out of it. Yeah. I mean, great, even better than the office. I mean, when I was when I was 22, 21, when I ran for county commissioner, I met a guy. A guy who was running for another office, and he was head of the Department of Aging. His name was Irving Pender, and um, he really liked me and said, you know, you're a great young man. Uh, we have a brand new position coming open, transportation yeah. coordinator. And th 35 years ago, that's how I got into transportation, was running for office, putting myself out there. And uh, and and running a decent campaign, even though as a kid, you know, I remember standing at the Bay Bridge waving to people, <laughs> sign waving here in Maryland. You know, I don't know if they do that in other places, but um, and then when I ran for state's attorney, I lost to a guy that became our congressman and now is a judge and became friends of his. Um, I ran against someone else, but he beat him in the primary. Uh, and so but even though I lost that race with 43 percent of the vote, again, I met these guys who were all yeah. run for county commissioner and they appointed me as county administrator. And then the last time I ran for county commissioner and won, I was friends with a guy who was running for governor at the time, Larry Hogan. And then he won. I won. We both won that time. And he's like, Paul, you know, you've got background in transportation. You're an attorney and you've run government agencies. You're just who we need to run the MTA. And so that's yeah. how I got kind of the penultimate job of my career running, you know, one of the top 12 transit systems in America and Baltimore. So a couple lessons from all that is you don't start you know, where you're going to end. You got to be willing to take a job a little bit, you know, lower on the, on the pole, so to speak, to uh, work your way up. Yeah. And then uh, good things can come out of bad things, actually better than you thought. If you run it with dignity and you're not an idiot and a jerk, you know, what you're doing and, and you don't burn your bridges. I've learned never to burn my bridges. Even, yeah. you know, when I've been let go, I'm, you know, I try to leave with dignity. I got let go of one job. And I remember telling the Washington post, uh, you know, well, you know, that's, I'm a big boy. <laughs> it's how the cookie crumbles. It's an appointed job. I'll move on to the next thing. And, you know, good things come out of that. You don't burn anybody on your way out the door. That doesn't yeah. suit you. So anyway, there's a couple uh, stories from my earlier career and lessons I learned from them.
lot of them i would say thank you for sharing this i mean i never knew this uh past background and i love some of the lesson i just want to summarize one lesson you mentioned that you need to know what you are good at yes. and if you are not good at you need to be ready to leave it don't try to spend your whole life if you know if you are not good at something second yeah. is take action in life don't just just think about it if you want to do something even if you don't get the you know maximum amount of it you will get something out of it so take action and do something go out and meet people like you mentioned you ran for position you didn't get some of these position but you met some of the best friend and that give you you know push in your career in another way so thank you for sharing great great lesson from your life thank you yeah it's um that's a very good point you make we can make it later too but i always uh, i've spoken at college graduations high school graduations as commencement speaker and the main lesson i try to do there is what you just said where your interests and your abilities intersect yeah your interests what you're interested in and then what you're good at not what your mom says you're good at but <laughs> cuz your mom thinks you're good at everything right and that's why it's great to have a great mom right but it's uh, it's what other people acknowledge that you're good at where they intersect that is where you should focus your attention that could be your destiny yeah. uh if but you got to take action dude i wake up every day full of energy. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's like I've got a tornado inside of me and I want to accomplish things today. And so, you know, I do all the things that you're supposed to, right? You make your list of what you need to accomplish the next day when you end today. Uh, and I'm constantly, Jasper, one other thing I wanted to mention since we're in this kind of, you know, ethereal background thing is I think it's important to take time to be quiet and to meditate. Oh, yeah. Uh, and to calm your spirit. Uh, and, you know, we have so much media and, and stuff, you know, in our minds. And I've got actually a chair right in my bedroom, right, uh, that I sit in every day and calm myself and be mm -hmm. quiet and listen to the inner voice, calmness in you. And I'm telling you, um, I get some of the best ideas there. Yeah. If you can have a creative idea that can be successful, uh, that can be worth so much more than eight hours of the grind. One idea can be, you know, I was reading the other day how that um, um, the Edison, you know, used to fall asleep with a steel ball in his hand. And when it hit the floor, it yeah. bounced and wake him up. And the idea that was in his head right then <laughs> was what he would do because he was tapping into his subconscious. Which is, which is great. No, thanks for sharing that. I, I fully agree with you. Meditation is very important. You know, having your calm space. There is this uh, famous investor called Naval Ravikant, and he say, when you do meditation, the state of your meditation is state of your life. So if you are calm, if you are peaceful, it means your life is calm and peaceful. If you can't sit quiet for two minutes, it means your life is, you know, needs some some work and you need to improve it. So thanks for sharing. I mean, these are like amazing lessons you have shared. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, I, sure. I really appreciate. It. I want now, you know. I want, can I say one more thing along yeah, those lines? Yeah, please, please, please. It's just you know, I'm, I'm an inductive thinker, so all this stuff comes to me as we're talking. I'm I'm making I'm pulling it together into a theme. Hopefully, uh, I've got some people I know that have a running dialogue in their head. I think, hmm. uh, and um, you can be in a conversation with them, and it it it. I was I was out actually with someone like this just last week, mm -hmm. and uh, it was me and him and another buddy. And um, he wouldn't shut up. Yeah. He ran his mouth for over an hour. And um, and he had a dialogue in his head that we could not, I, I couldn't. So my point is, you need to be self-aware. Yeah. Uh, if you want to be a leader, um, you know, you've got these leaders who, you know, are, you know, General Patton out there. You know, oh, we're going to get this done. Blah, blah, blah. But I think the, the best and the wisest leaders take time to listen 
take time to interact with other people, are really interested in what uh, other people have to say because they're smart enough to realize that they don't know everything. And they don't dominate every interaction. I know I'm dominating our conversation now, but so well, you're you're the guest. You have okay, to. that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So uh, I'm on the other side of the mic today. Um, but anyway, my point is that's another thing. Just be self-aware yeah. that you know if you have this dialogue of all the stuff you need to say, maybe say it in bites uh, and let the other person have an opportunity to have some input and stay focused on what's going on in the interaction between you. Not all these 10 stories that you wanted to get out on the table. Anyway, I don't know what, what good that'll be to anybody, but it may apply to one or two people listening. They're like, oh yeah. I mean, we've all had those moments when somebody speaks into our life and it helps us. When I was this kid that I was telling you about, 22, I had my first job as transportation coordinator for the county. I remember Bob Salit, the county administrator, talked to me after I made a presentation to the county commissioners yeah. on something. And he said, Paul, do you ever notice you give a little like a nervous laugh sometimes right before you answer a question? I'm like, no, I didn't really notice that. He said, well, you do. And you need to you need to cool it. Uh, it makes it appear that you are uh, winging it, that you don't have a real solid answer, that mm. you're nervous. Uh, and the commissioners are, you know, budgeting money based on what you tell them. Yeah. And so you need to get rid of that little nervous laugh you've got and just say the answer. I've, I, I relish opportunities for people to, to um, critique me if yeah. they're interested in what's good for me. You know, if somebody's just trying to be destructive and, and critical of you, that's not good. But if it's a critique intended to make you better, I think we all need to be open to those, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, and that's the problem in today's world. People are jump to give, uh, you know, negative feedback. But if you ask those people, okay, tell me it's one thing to improve and they have no no point to tell you. <laughs> which is sad because I feel if you want to give any feedback, you should give a feedback so that the other person can improve, not to destroy or not to, you know, be critical. And, yeah. and that's the world is becoming. So thanks. I mean, I fully agree with you. That's how the life. Now you mentioned you had such a long career in transit sector. You started at the age of 22. Right. I don't want to guess your age now, but yeah. I, I know you are in multi-decade, like uh, three, yeah, four decades. Yeah, I'm over 50. The... Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> you will always remain, you know, uh, over I'm 50 young at heart, though. I feel like I'm like 35. So, <laughs> uh, by, by heart, you are 35, the way Maybe you are better. learning and talking. <laughs> now, you work as a country administrator for two suburban counties in Maryland. And like you mentioned, you work as a CEO of MTA Maryland, which is one of the top 15 transit system in the in the US. So it's not an easy job. But now you're on the other side of the job. Now you're working as a chief customer officer with uh, Modexo and the right. uh, transit leader across the world. Now you've seen both the world, you've seen many generations over the period of time. So I'm very curious to learn that how you think the transit industry has changed over the period of time, especially in US, because a lot of time we don't realize, we think our, you know, the things are like that. But I think you have seen industry spending out over the period. You've seen on the development of IT and infrastructure and new technology. How do you think things have changed over the period of time? Yeah. Well, I would say in a couple areas. Uh, one is technology, like you mentioned. Um, a lot of transit agencies have been stuck in the 80s and 90s, I would say, yeah. in the technology they're using. And I think um, the period of the pandemic where we had to do more things remotely uh, made a lot of transit agencies realize, hey, you know, we need to get off paper. Uh, I remember visiting a Canadian transit system not too long ago, and they were still having a, a, a utility worker walk the yard three or four times a day to identify where all the vehicles were in the yard, writing it on a sheet of paper, and then sticking it up on the wall and dispatch. So dispatch could tell the driver where the vehicle was three hours ago. 
And, you know, there's plenty of technology now available. One of our companies, Vauntus, actually sells a yard finder, uh, and I'm sure other people do too, uh, which will, you know, identify where the vehicle <laughs> is right now, not where it was three hours ago. And it does it yeah. off a ping instead of off a person. Those kind of things, I think, um, is a big change, right? Technology. Yeah, yeah, Te yeah. technology is a, is a really big change. I, I yeah. agree with you. Yeah. And also you think in terms of a manpower, in terms of a mindset, things have changed over the period of time, or you think there is a lot of work required in that area? Well, in the 70s, coming out of, um, so public transportation was really big after World War II, right? When all the men came back from World War II, yeah. public transportation was in its heyday in the 1950s. Uh, and so private companies like utility companies set up light rail systems and tram systems across major cities and even minor cities, you know, Greensboro, North Carolina, places like that may have had a trolley or a tram. And they were largely run by uh, these uh, utility companies and private companies. I remember the city of Baltimore had a number of transit companies, they called them yeah. at the time. And then, uh, so and a lot of, everybody was riding, right? But um, to get to work and to you know go down and get the bus to do whatever. So we had about a 20 year run. And then in the 1970s, um, when more people got cars, automobiles, and the, the, the advent of the two car home uh, came into place, suddenly people started riding transit less. And it, it was so much so that a lot of the transit uh, companies went bankrupt and the utility companies, you know, the power and light company uh, sold these agencies and these companies to the cities or state governments, jurisdictional governments where they were at. So in the 1970s, uh, pretty much everybody that was a private sector making money for profit uh, company on transit got out because they just couldn't make the money. Yeah. And uh, and so we had a 40 year run where we had a monopoly where transit agencies in major cities across America uh, had a monopoly on public mobility. But that, that all changed in the 2010s with the advent yeah. of Uber and Lyft and other private sector companies coming in saying, you know what, we want a piece of the action. So a guy named Nat Ford, who was president of the American Public Transportation Association at that time, recognized that probably five or six years ago now, and uh, and suggested that we make a change and that the public transit industry, he runs Jacksonville Transit now and is, again, still doing cutting-edge research on autonomous yeah. vehicles. I visited his test and learn facility there. But he suggested we make a change in the role that transit agencies play from the transit provider to the uh, mobility aggregator. And yeah. that public transit agencies should aggregate uh, under their umbrella, so to speak, um, all of the mobility services in a city, public or private sector, scooters, bikes, um, you know, all, all the work that goes on there. And I, we've we've slowly made that change. So your initial question was, how have things changed in the over 30 years you've been involved in the industry? That's one of the biggest changes for an industry yeah. uh, that we have definitely changed our role. I remember being at MTA. And I remember Uber reached out to me, and I've already told them the story. I just told uh, the head of Uber Transit last week where, when you and I were at um, Commotion. In commotion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, told, I told I uh, told Dmitry Vanjagoff the story, who's one of the head dudes there. Uh, I said, dude, I don't know if you know this, but you know, when Uber came to me when I was at the MTA, it was like our way or the highway with Uber, and I, I couldn't mm. I couldn't do a deal with them. Uh, but it's totally changed now. They have changed their approach to cities and cities have changed our approach. And we've said we want to embrace uh, all of the mobility options in a city. And I really think that's the proper role of an agency uh, to not allow the private sector to take the lead, yeah. uh, which has a, you know, a profit um, mentality. But because we have the motivation of helping people uh, and that is to me where, uh, you know, 
Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, begin with the end in mind. What is our end? Our end yeah. purpose in transit is not to make a profit. We are not a business. Our end purpose, in my mind, is to provide safe, efficient, reliable mobility with world-class customer service so that we can provide access to all of life's opportunities to as many people as possible. That yeah. is our reason d'etre. And it's even been more solidified through the COVID pandemic when people realized that, you know, hey, we're not only really about commuters going to the tall, shiny buildings and downtowns anymore. It's an important part, but we can't make that the number one goal. It needs yeah. to be about more than that. So those are some Great. changes I've seen. Thank you for sharing. You you put the the history of uh, so many decades in in just five minutes, which is great. In fact, when I was in Seattle, I know I discovered that Seattle used to have a light rail system hundred years back. They used to have streetcar, yeah, and then they ripped apart, and now they are constructing again. But a lot of people don't know about the history that the the many U.S. city used to have a good streetcar and light rail system, and it went out over the period of time because these agencies were profit making, couldn't make profit. And then they went bankrupt, and and rightly rightly mentioned, you know, now the role of public transit agencies is not to just run buses and tram. It's it's how to offer mobility to the people because people are not just looking to take a bus ride. Your end goal is go from point A to point B. So if you can't fulfill that with public transit, people will not come back. And That's in right. fact, I, I want to follow up on this question because you share some interesting fact and. You rightly mentioned that the ridership start declining in North America. Actually, in, it started in 2014. The highest number of uh, the journey happened in the U.S. was in 2014, when 10.7 billion people or journeys were happened. But what happened after that? The pe the people start taking cars and some other mode like Uber, ride-hailing companies start emerging, and then the pandemic hit. Everything went to zero, and now it start building up. Now, what do you think is the biggest reason for drop in ridership is it the customer care service is it the service it's a other option available and how do you think you know because now the biggest challenge for transit agency is to bring back riders and i'm pretty sure this is the discussion you must be having with all the transit leader so how they can use technology or marketing or incentive or loyalty to bring back rider especially in us because our ridership is still not cross 70 80% yeah so let's start with um, the context, which you set up for us, which is great. Um, there was a decline in ridership uh, across the U.S. and Canada and some Western uh, European countries. Um, not everyone experienced that. Uh, South America, Africa, someplace in Asia was were not experiencing a decline yeah. in ridership, uh, where public transportation really is seen as a primary mode of mobility. Here in the U.S., not so much, right? Uh, in the U.S., we are a car-centric society, and a lot of that has to do with the distances that are necessary to travel in your life. If you live outside of a city, um, you know you you largely can't get around without a car. Where I yeah. live, I live out in the country. You know, there is no transit to my house. Uh, there's no mobility, and so I wouldn't be able to ride if I wanted to. I have to, you know, I'll go to um, a light rail station or a um, uh, metro station in DC and hop on, you know, park and then hop on the metro. But so we start from a different place, I think, than other countries are because it's our country's never, except for those golden few years, right, that you yeah. mentioned uh, when everybody was riding transit. But even then, it was just in the cities. Um, so I think that's a uh, that's important to take note of is that we we have not traditionally been. Uh, 
we have not traditionally been a transit oriented society. We've been a car oriented -oriented society, but I remember 2015 or 16, all the CEOs uh, got together at a conference down in Florida. And the, the topic, you know, that everybody's hair was on fire about was, you know, the ridership is declining. What are we going to do? You know, they, uh, the politicians who fund us, they are saying to us, why should I give you more money next year when you're yeah. going to be serving less people? And so there was a big concern. And to be honest with you, Tom Lambert, the CEO of Houston Metro, came yeah. up with a solution. Uh, and it is just what you mentioned a minute ago is that so many cities had these old trolley systems and the bus systems, just like in Baltimore, were laid out on basically the same routes that the trolley systems were. And uh, most of the routes went to the downtown central business districts. Yeah. I'll give you an example. In Baltimore, where I was CEO in 2015, 16, when we did an analysis, two thirds of our routes went to the central business district where there were 140,000 jobs at the time, but there was over 250,000 jobs in the outer skirts of the city. And we had never really comprehensively adjusted our routes to meet the needs of today's customers. Mm. So I think Tom figured that out. And Tom comes from a law enforcement background. You know, he's chief of police. They still call him chief, but uh, he's the head of, uh, you know, the metro system there. And I don't know if you saw, but they just did some amazing financial things. I saw that. I saw that. that. Smart paying off debt. Etc. So anyway, um, uh, I, I went and visited him in 2016 with eight of my staff to say, what have you done? Because they they worked with the, you know, with some outside consultants, etc. And they were able to make some changes to their routes overnight. And we did the same thing. We followed their model. We came back with 10 lessons. We did something called Baltimore Link after a two-year study that had done been done by my predecessor uh, on the Better Bus Network or something like that. And uh, anyway, we changed the routes overnight, and so did a lot of other cities. So in 2017, yeah. uh, seven cities did it, Vegas, Vancouver, and they all saw an increase in ridership. In 18, it was others. And then in 19 is when, I don't know if you remember, but we said, ah, oh, for the first time you know, in a long time, Transit ridership this year, including New York City, is more than it was last year. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. So I think we need to, um, you know, take a lesson from uh, the commercial sector, which is if they aren't buying it, let's not sell it. (laughs) And so, (laughs) so, for instance, the commuter buses, the commuter trains that are all going to downtown, heavy AM, heavy PM peak, they are still decimated. Ridership is under 50 to 60% in most of those commuter services. So what are we doing still running heavy AM, PM peaks? Let's spread yeah. it out. Let's uh, let's you know market it as a regional rail. Let's encourage, and some people are doing this, and let's encourage yeah. people to ride during the day, the rail downtown to see the museums, families invite families. Uh, moms make them feel, you know, welcome on the vehicles uh, at nights and weekends. Some people, you know, like up in your neck of the woods, Jasper in Toronto, uh, my buddy Phil Verster is doing that with Go Train and Go Bus. He told me that yep. a couple of years ago. We're adjusting what we're doing. He's also doing other cool things. You know, he did this even before the pandemic. What what basically um, putting the customer experience first. So like, yep. I, I don't know if you you probably know all this, but, you know, they're doing things like they have a deal with a big grocery store up there where you can buy your groceries online when you're at work. And when you get home, they're in a refrigerated locker at the station. Those kind of customer experience things that I, I, when I traveled on Rocky Mountaineer, you know, this excursion train out of Denver recently, all the way that they serve their customers and put their customers first. And I'm telling you, there's a dearth of customer service now, post pandemic. There's not enough employees in a lot of places and customer service has really suffered. Uh, I, I called a recent, a major store, one of the biggest stores in America. 
uh, on their phone number. And they just like last month and they said, we're not answering the phone anymore. You yeah. need to go online and go to our frequently asked questions. I was like, are you kidding me? Uh, so, um, so anyway, we need to, we need, uh, you know, I was in uh, London a few weeks ago and I was just amazed at the level of customer service that TFL yeah. has and the rail service has where they have people, actual people standing out there saying over here, this is where you go to get to here. This is where you go to, you know, friendly faces focused on, you know, you as a passenger. It's like, wow, this is good. So I yeah. think those are some things we can do. Obviously, all the technology, you know, to make sure people know where their vehicle is at all times. And they can, you know, check it out on their phone and all that kind of stuff's important. Doing micro mobility, you know, doing electric, uh, all the things that that are pretty obvious, I think. But those are some other things I think. Focus on where the customers want to go today. Make sure we give them good customer service. Make sure they feel safe on board. Yeah. Um there's been a concern in major cities across the U.S. lately that, you know, New York especially, and I talked to the general manager about this recently, you know, what are we doing to improve this? And not just the actual safety, but the perception of safety. Perception of the safety. To be That's there, right? So people feel safe. I remember uh, in Baltimore, we won the APTA Gold Award for safety in 2016 for something called our Zeus program, Zone Enforced Something Something it stood for. Uh, and I remember our chief of police, he was a great guy. He, he went out of his way to make sure that there was the perception of safety at our stations and there was uniformed uh, personnel there. There was vehicles with there was a lot of light so that people felt safe and could see where they were going. And and uh, and, you know, the two years I was there, we had no rapes, no murders, no shootings. I know that's like a low bar, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, but we, we had one of the best uh, safety records uh, actually of, among the top. 12 systems, we were ranked as having the, the lowest number of part one crimes on our system during the two years I was there in America. Uh, and it was largely due to this perception and the yeah. actuality of a good response system. We even had, dude, it was amazing. We They had, even back then, this was seven, eight years ago, they had like, it wasn't quite artificial intelligence, but in our train and subway stations, they had camera systems that would be, if you set your briefcase down uh, and you sat there for too long, the camera would ah. zoom in on it and then they would see it at the operations control center and they would send a police officer there to find out what in the world's going on. So, and now they've got, you know, stuff's even way beyond that now. So, oh yeah. Yeah. Now, now there is so much technology, but I, I really love your point about uh, the safety and putting customer first. And that's what we are missing right now because sometimes we think too much about technology and tools and other things. And what we forgot is like what customer need. They just need a safe ride going point to point A to point B quicker and faster way. They don't need anything else. They're just looking. So you need to put customer first and you need to adopt technology just to support customer experience, not, not to just have a fancy tool and app because sometimes I feel we are so fascinated about these technology thing that we just want to have more and more app for everything. But Nobody has time to do this. You know, people just want to have a safe ride in the in the transition. No, thanks for sharing that, Paul, and and congratulations what you did at MTA uh, Maryland. I mean, I, I I remember those awards. I read that that you got those award because of the system was so successful. Now yeah, we had a great one team. Of the, the, it was yeah, a dream a great team. team there. Yeah. Now one of the big thing happened with the pandemic is uh, there was a there was a focus back on public transit because uh, during the pandemic, during the COVID uh, time, the frontline worker were using the public transit. So the government said, okay, we need to fund the system. And uh, the, the federal government in US, they passed this bipartisan infrastructure law, giving $108 billion to support 
public transportation program, including 91 billion in, in guaranteed funding. Now, you are speaking with many transit leaders. I'm, I'm pretty sure you are traveling every week. You are speaking to them. How do you see these agencies that are using funding to help to transform the public transport sector? Because this funding is not unlimited. I mean, this will eventually go away. That's so right. how they can use this funding to be more innovative and more creative and make public transit system better? Yeah, I do talk to uh, our executives uh, around the U.S. and the world on a regular basis every week, and I'm hearing great uses of those funds. Some of them were using them to do pilot programs. Yeah. They use some of the money to do where they normally wouldn't have this extra money. And so they used it, for instance, in Las Vegas, um, uh, MJ Maynard, uh, who heads up the RTC there, used it to fund some mobility, micro mobility pilots in transit mm. deserts, which I thought was a brilliant idea, right? See, uh, you know, where the, there's not enough traffic, uh, passenger traffic to justify a 40 foot bus, yeah. but there are people with mobility needs and micro mobility doesn't always have to be more expensive than fixed route. In some ways it may actually be less expensive um, if you're, if you're subcontracting it out or, you know, there's ways you can do it where it's not that expensive. So she was using it for that. Other people use the money and some new money that's coming in now from the federal government through the Infrastructure Act uh, to fund uh, you know, zero emission vehicles. Yeah. Uh, we're doubling the size of the fleet. People are maybe surprised, but as of a few months ago, we only had a little over a thousand electric vehicles on the on the road in America, electric buses. Uh, and so there's enough money in this new act to double that size. But also people are starting to look at, at um other alternative fuels such as hydrogen and mm. Jasper, I'm very encouraged and enthused about our approach to hydrogen. And my friend John Rassant, who heads up Comotion, was actually just in Morocco right after our event, uh, headlining an event there on on hydrogen. And you know they have it now. I talked to the guys there who said, you know, we've got vehicles now that actually create the hydrogen on the vehicle. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, you know, it's not the Hindenburg here we're talking about, folks. People are always worried when they hear hydrogen. They're worried, they're worried about something <laughs> that happened 100 years ago with the uh, a dirigible, you know, exploding. It, it, it's not it's, that's not what's happening. Uh, it's very it's they have all kinds Let's of see. new safety protocols, et cetera. Uh, but it is up and coming. So those are some of the kind of the new techniques and new technologies uh, and new approaches to mobility that cities and transit agencies have utilized some of this new funding to pilot out and i think it's a it's a very good use of that in my opinion no great thanks for sharing that and and i agree with you hydrogen it's it's developing very fast in fact uitp is doing a couple of projects in u for the oh, demonstration good. of uh, hydrogen and yeah. a lot of people don't know i mean i was telling people that sometime like we also need to look what china is doing in this area and right now china is targeting all the transit agency that their 30 percent fleet should be hydrogen so oh, now, really? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. So now wow. after the electric, now they are telling all the agencies which are procuring electric buses, they are saying your fleet should be 30% fleet should be hydrogen. So it means they are also going bullish and aggressive on hydrogen technology. So it's a right opportunity for us to look at right now. Yeah, I think we have to make sure that we have, a, um, I would call an all of the above approach is what I'm hearing. I, I've, I've talked to a half dozen CEOs in the last three months. And they've all told me, uh, Paul, we're not going to go all electric. It's an important, yeah. it's the most advanced technology, but we want to look at hydrogen. We want to look at CNG uh, and maybe even keep clean, some clean diesel in our fleet uh, to make sure that, you know, if the grid goes down, if there's a hurricane or a natural disaster or, you know, what just happened in North Carolina this week yeah. where the grid went down for, you know, we don't want our vehicles to be dead after running them for one day. Uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, 
we have to just be realist about this. We we cannot have uh, public transit vehicles that can't be used because we put all of our eggs in one basket. I'm just, yeah. you know, that's my opinion. Uh, I'm not speaking for you know my employer or anybody else. That's my personal opinion uh, based on conversations I've had with a number of leaders in our industry. Uh, I'm all in on electric. Believe me, I'm all in. I love what they're doing. But I think we uh, right now. Uh, that there's a push to diversify. Yeah. Uh, and I think hydrogen is is one that's being proven. It's still way behind on the technology side of where we're at necessarily on electric. But I think uh, I think in all of the above approach and putting some investment, I even was happy to see some money was set aside in the new federal law to make sure that some of it could be used for hydrogen research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I actually, I fully agree with your approach of having all of the above because mm -hmm. you need to have uh, different technology and you need to, be ready for all kinds of emergencies. Like there was hurricane happen in, in Florida uh, last couple of months back. So yes. if you have all electric, what will you do? Your buses right. are standing and you say we cannot charge. Yeah, so I just to... read an article this morning that uh, Bill Gates has some company that um, is, uh, you know, turning your clean diesel into biodiesel, which mm. produces even less emissions overall than electric does, it said. That was an Axios, by the way, if anybody wants to look that up. Um, okay. So I did a little, I, I read the whole article and made a note of it that, you know, that's something, you know. So as technologies develop, there could be more than one potential solution for our, our going forward. I, I think we definitely all agree that part of the role of public transportation has changed. And part of our role now is what I would call environmental stewardship. It's yeah. a overarching goal. We need, you know, public transit's always been, cleaner than cars. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> even when it was a dirty belching bus of dirty diesel, you still took a hundred cars off the road for every bus. And so uh, the overall you know, impact has always been better, but there's so many new cool technologies now. And the battery electric is getting better and better and better, oh, better, better. where you need just a little trickle of power and you can run for, you know, 500 miles or whatever. So it's, uh, it's, it, that's getting there too. Yeah. No, in fact, I know one startup which is based uh, out of uh, Calgary, Alberta. So they are actually converting ethanol to hydrogen. So mm. they have a station which is using, taking the ethanol and then process it and they can produce hydrogen on the site. So uh -huh. you don't need to even transport. So, so a lot of innovation happening. And in fact, that's what I want to talk to you now about innovation. You, a lot of people know you are an author too. You have already wrote four books. Now you're coming out with your fifth book, which is amazing. And your second book was about future of public transportation. And, and you talk about all the future technology. You published that book and right just bang on the pandemics. Yeah, the, you know, March it came out in March of 2020, <laughs> man. I had it on was... my wall behind me at the time, like a concert poster you would see on the back of a t-shirt of a, a, literally a global tour, a sponsored global tour. I was going to visit four continents, I think it was, and do all these book signings. <laughs> I got to the first one in my own neighborhood, and, Which, you know, it was nice. We had like 50 people there for a book signing. Uh, and then all the rest of them got canceled. But you know what, Jasper? I ended up being able to touch more people's lives yeah, uh, virtually, over yeah. Zoom and Teams and all this stuff around the world. You know, thousands and thousands of people uh, doing kind of virtual uh, events around the world over the next 18 months. So, you know, there's always a silver lining. Oh, there is always a silver lining. You know, I remember, in fact, you were supposed to come at IT Trans in Kalsue in March. And that I was supposed yeah. to fly and day before the flight they yeah. even got postponed because of pandemic and all and in the book you talk about a lot of future technology about autonomous vehicle shuttle hyperloop high-speed train mobility yeah. as a service now we are in like december 2022 now two year two and a half year uh, after you have wrote that book 
how do you see these technologies are shaping up now like if if you look back and see okay yes. you make some prediction in that book how do you see those predictions are happening and which technology you feel is progressing and which are losing stream because innovation doesn't mean 100% guarantee some will grow some will vanish but that's part of that's fun of innovation yeah well good so again this is just my opinions <laughs> i'm speaking <laughs> for myself here um but i i see that um one type of technology is really taken off and that is fairing technology um ticketing fairing whatever you want to call it where we're moving away from cash and we're moving away from cash boxes i believe yeah. fare boxes and moving more toward validators and multiple types of payment options which you know can be as simple as um uh, you know, a, a multi-use card run by the agency like the Oyster card or what Shashi Verma got us going for at TFL uh, a few years ago and now is swept across the world, which is contactless payment using your credit card, which is awesome because that's a multi-use system as well. You just tap yeah. and go uh, to, you know, wearables, to all kinds of media, which you can use. I mean, they've even got it now where, you know, obviously it can come off your phone, right? Apple Pay, Google Pay. And some places are even now doing it off facial recognition or oh, your yeah. eyes. Where you con yeah, contact. Uh, they have your contacts in the system and then it comes out of your account. So I think fairing has really done uh, gone up. Let's let's use the or, you know thumbs up for fairing. Thumbs right? up. <laughs> yeah. uh, thumbs down for mobility as a service, I would say. Mobility as a service is is where all the mobility options in a city go on one app and you plan, pay for, and schedule your trips all behind the scenes. And we really had high hopes for it. And a lot of transit agencies have uh, pursued it. It started in Finland by a company there that I understand just went bankrupt this last year or yeah. went out of business at least. I won't say the name of it, uh, but I just found that out in the last month. I'm assuming it's true. The person who told me had some credibility, but it hasn't really taken off like I thought it would. Um, and um, it could be because of the pandemic, you know, where people weren't riding as much, right? So that's probably why it didn't take off as much. I still have hope for it. I think it's a cool thing. I spoke a lot about it, did a lot of research on it, but it hasn't really taken off. When you take, when you look at the cities who have put it in and you look at how many people are actually using it, yeah. not very many, uh, low percentage points in the places I've been. Now, I'm sure you're going to hear from five people who say, oh, it's being used in my city a lot. Well, maybe so, but generally I'm talking about industry trends. Uh, down, I would say is Hyperloop. Um, Hyperloop had a lot of promise. Uh, you know, I made friends with a lot of people in Hyperloop, right? So now you had Elon Musk and you had Sir Richard Branson heading up these two big companies. And uh, I think I, I, I actually had a long conversation uh Again, I think a commotion was somebody who was explaining to me why that happened. Uh, maybe it was even you. I don't know, Jasper, <laughs> but somebody was telling me, you know, how that basically, you know, the pandemic killed a lot of that stuff. Yeah, a lot of yeah. the research, a lot of the money that was behind it, the private equity funds dried up, et cetera. So I don't see that taking off as much, but I do see thumbs up uh, for high speed trains. Yeah. Here in the US, um, you know, we've seen, uh, and I've, I've done a lot of focus on it down in Florida. There's a private company called Brightline Trains that does yeah, higher speed. It's not what we would traditionally call, you know, like high speed, like like Europe and China has in Japan where they're going 300 miles per hour. But it's, you know, it's faster than normal. And it's inner city, which is what the promise was for Hyperloop, right? Um, or Maglev uh, high speed trains was, uh, you know, you could see that. Like when I was in Baltimore, we were doing a study. We had, I think $26 million, something like that. 
They're still studying it, by the way, and I've been out of there okay. for over five years. But, you know, a, ma a maglev train between Baltimore and Washington would be a 15-minute ride and then eventually go up to New York and maybe Boston, which is probably a good corridor to do it, just like the one in California. But again, it's taking so long, the environmental reviews and and the funding, um, you know, uh, busted budgets. Um, so uh, I would say higher speed private trains up um oh. the, the hyperloop maglev still you know it's it's all over china and japan i don't know why we can't get it get it here i wish we could <laughs> i wish i could you know put my thumb on the scale and make it go but uh it just doesn't seem to have taken off like as much as i was hoping it would so um I, and, and in autonomous vehicles i would give them uh sideways some oh. thumb two thumbs up two thumbs down and av sideways we haven't really figured out in my opinion, where to use them effectively yet. Yes. Uh, and the technology hasn't really come around like we thought it was going to. Um, you know, it works well if, you know, if it's on a predetermined route, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, like I said, I was just down in Florida with Nat Ford's people and, and riding, riding on the autonomous vehicles, the latest, greatest technology. And um, it still doesn't do what I want it to do, you know, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, Put a, put a push a button on my phone and I'm not on some predetermined path and an autonomous vehicle comes to my house, picks me up and then flies me like Jetsons <laughs> where I want to go. Maybe we'll get there eventually. But VTOLs, uh, we might as well just mention them. I think they're on the uptake. Uh, we yeah. just saw in New York City the announcement that one of the major airlines had you know, basically said, yeah, we're making this happen. I mean – the technology is basically like an electric helicopter in some ways, or um, you know, like those uh, Marines vehicles. Uh, the Marines have vehicles called Ospreys, yeah. um, very similar. And so the technology, I think, is going to be there, especially for package delivery and things like that, like it already is. But eventually, within the next couple of years, I think we'll start seeing people as well. Now, you know, I was just in Dubai earlier this year, and um, the cruise people from GM are working with my buddy over there who runs yeah. the Dubai transit yeah, system. That. And they're mapping the whole city out this year. And he told me by the end of next year, Paul, we're going to have autonomous cars, not necessarily buses, but cars working in the city. And it will be just what you want. It won't fly, but it'll, you know, it'll pick you up and take. So, you know, I think it slowed down during the pandemic, but that I think is coming back. That's why I give it equal. It's not down. It's just, it hasn't gone as fast as far as I wanted it to. So there's my, there's comfort's take on technology. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's such a great summary. And I, I fully agree with you. Some of those thumbs up and thumbs down. And for, for high-speed train, I, I sometimes wonder, you know, why we can't build what happened in China. Like if you see in China last 20 years, they have now more than 18,000 kilometers of high-speed train network. Wow. Like Shanghai is connected with Beijing, so people take overnight train and go rather yeah. than taking flight. Uh, I mean, let's I get know. real. I, th I think a lot of it is environmental reviews and all the extra layers of, of things that, you know, some governments just come in, tell everybody, get out of the way, we're putting this there. And yeah. other governments, uh, you know, take their time, go through all the env proper environmental reviews, take make sure that people have input. A lot of people don't like it coming through their backyard. I know that was a concern of ours in building the Purple Line in yeah. Washington, D.C. People were suing and the courts, you know, took a year or two off. The th so we, we have a lot of extra layers of review in the Western world that maybe some governments don't have to uh, go through. To go through. Yeah, especially yeah. In, in some of these countries, uh, which we talk about. In fact, they are studying about a high-speed train between Toronto and Montreal for the last 30 years. And 30 they have years. did 30 years, you know, they have done yeah. like four or five feasibility study because by the time the new government come and say, okay, we want to do it. They say, oh, the feasibility report is old and everything oh. is changed. Oh, wow. So now what do you do? You do the new feasibility report and nothing happened after that. You find so I, I wish we can move a little faster and do yeah. something, uh, something better. Now, 
you gave a lot of prediction for the mobility sector and i i was recently listening to one of your podcasts which was about public transit in 2023 for okay. one year but i want now you to make some prediction for public transit in 2030 so how mm. we will see public transit will change in next 7 8 year and how should transit leader should be ready for this new change because most of the time we feel that people are not ready to to accept this change and they feel things will not change uh, that quickly all right i've got three predictions okay all right for 2030 these are mine again i'm speaking for myself not for anybody else <laughs> um i think transit will become more individualized mobility will okay. become more individualized um micro transit autonomous vehicles um will be tuned to you and your needs uh it really is the way it has to go right i mean they're never going to replace you know the subway etc but i think that's the next phase of our of our uh evolution as an industry we already see it it's just taking yeah. it to the next level so individualized transit um the the guys from transdev used to say it's pace personalized autonomous um something that's connected, connected connected and electric. electric yeah 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 and so i i generally agree with that i think that was a great acronym uh so that's one two i think we're going to take to the air now you know uh -huh. people can call these the lexus lanes you know people are always upset about when you add in a pay lane on a beltway around a city and you're like oh you know that's the lexus lanes it's only for the rich people but you know what i get all that but it does take vehicles off of the lanes that i'm in cuz i'm hmm. not going to pay 30 bucks to ride that green line lane but i am going to stay in here and if you can take <laughs> some cars off and make my life easier i don't mind so the air lanes are the same way right we're not all going to be able to afford that but i predict by 2030 for $49 you'll be able to get a vehicle uh and that depends on where inflation goes but let's say uh in 2022 dollars <laughs> i was saying $99 let's stick with my $99 for $99 you'll be able to call the vtol the electric unmanned vehicle to your front yard in my house i want to okay. see it right out that window and i'm going to get in that vehicle and it's going to take me to downtown washington dc which you know to fly is probably only 20 minutes from where i live and drop me at the roof of the DOT building for a meeting with then secretary Jaspal Singh or whoever it is going to be <laughs> and I'll be able to go in there for my meeting and then get picked up and brought back here so I don't have to go in all traffic that's i think vertical takeoff and landing vehicles i think are going to happen will be reality yeah yeah and so uh, again great. it won't be for everyone it doesn't meet every need blah 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 but it is a part of the overall mobility mosaic of a city yeah. i mean uh light rail doesn't meet everyone's needs but it's still considered a mode I, i can't use light rail i live 45 minutes from the closest light rail station i have to drive there to use it and i do to go like to orioles games or things like that and then lastly i think the focus will shift i think there'll be a lot more private partners and um you know i work uh i'm executive director of a group called the north american transit alliance which represents six of the largest contractors yeah. know, national express first transit uh Transdev, MV, Keolis and RTP Dev and there's others too around the world and they are real partners with transit agencies in Europe and Australia and Asia not so much here in North America they're seen more as vendors uh and i see that changing over the next 10 years where public transit agencies are going to partner up more with these big companies and even some smaller companies DBEs yeah. etc and see them as real partners they have all kinds of expertise they can bring they can lower prices there's all kinds of things they add to the mix and so i see the focus shifting even beyond this mobility aggregator to now uh, uh partnering with these other companies so those are three trends i would see 
and how how you think the leader should be ready for that because like you said these are the big changes like all these are big changes which will change the transit sector so how you think they should be ready for this change yeah i so i think um all of them involve partnerships with private industry mm. uh all of them would you know the more individualized is going to require you know better software and technology that companies like the one i work for can provide and others too the vertical takeoff and landing vehicles those are going to be provided largely by private companies right but it can be part of the you know if we're going to update that mobility as a service app now you can throw on the VTOL on there as well as the Uber, yeah. the Lyft, the scooter, the this, the that. So I think uh, being open-minded to partnerships with the private sector is key. Um, and uh, obviously the shift, the last one would all do that. So that's what I would do. I would change procurement policies to mm. make it easier to partner, to include a um, you know an RFI process earlier in the process where you actually get input from the private sector and you don't think you know it all. Look, man, yeah. I used to run... Uh, as you mentioned, here's a good example of it. Okay. So I was county administrator in a county and we had a business park. We bought some land and we were trying to do a business park. And so we were trying to sell the land or lease the land to businesses. And I remember it was taking forever. All the promises of our economic development office fell to the wayside and we didn't have hardly anybody in the park until somebody, some bright person said, you know, maybe government doesn't make the best real estate agent. Maybe yeah. we need to hire another company to come in here and actually manage the process of uh, leasing out. And, and so we did. We brought in a company and Jasper, the place sold out. <laughs> uh, we write, you know, government doesn't do everything best. And so there is private sector partners. And so we had to change our viewpoint. And I would encourage public transit agencies to do just that, that if you want to prepare for the future, if you think the future is going to involve partnership with private agencies, then look at your procurement practices, make yeah. sure you're including their input um, and uh, and make sure you're not excluding them from helping you uh, design what the future might look like. It doesn't yeah. mean you're setting it up for a specific vendor. I'm just talking about general industry trends, Oh yeah, uh, you know, that that if um that I think we need to take all that in mind and some of these procurement processes haven't been changed since the 1980s and uh and so if you want to partner with a private company and you want to be it do it in the 2020 sense I think that there are probably consultants out there big companies that would come in and help you evaluate that and and take a look at modernizing your processes and enabling people who are closer in your own agency, closer yeah. to the customer to have more feedback on what is needed. Don't just leave it in the procurement office on the 14th floor of your, you know, corporate office buildings, involve your drivers, your operators, your mechanics, your frontline managers, let them be involved in designing the process and yeah. also designing what the outcomes should be. Let them be involved. They're the ones that know what's needed in my opinion. No, I, I love your point about this uh, changing the procurement strategy. In fact, I was speaking with a guy from TFL London and, and they now don't talk about just a simple procurement. They talk about co-development and co you know, designing and co-inventing stuff with the private industry. So they don't look them just as a vendor. They look them as a partner to design solution because that's how the world has become. These companies, they have talent. They can come forward and they can help work with you. And you got the pulse of the on the ground so the driver the operator they know what customers are looking with what are the challenges they are facing so how you can work with the industry partner and develop something so so thanks for sharing that point and i i fully agree with you is uh, public procurement is a, is the biggest challenge now you are traveling all around the world you are in different continent different countries and you must be collecting a lot of souvenirs from all the world but what i want to now ask you is that uh, 
you meet the leader uh, from different transit sector, different transit system in different part of the world. What are the good practices you would like to bring back to US? Because you have that macro view of what's happening in different part of the world. And if I say, okay, Paul, if you can bring some of the good practices back home, what will be those good practices? So you're right. I have visited um, a lot of the continents in the world. And I'm actually this new book that you mentioned, I'm putting together a cookbook that somebody suggested I call comfort food. So I think I'm going to do that. That's a oh, good okay. play on words. Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice and it's, name. It's recipes from transit executives, CEOs, and celebrities around the world, uh, representing hopefully, you know, all the different continents, or at least most of them. So I have visited a lot of them. And here's uh, some practice I'd love to bring back to North America. One is um, what I was experiencing when I was in Melbourne. They have an amazing, uh, Melbourne, Australia, they have an amazing uh, downtown light rail system that's free in the central uh. business district. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of talk now about whether we should go free. I mean, I just posted an article this morning that Washington, D.C. is going to try to make public transportation. If you start a trip in the in the district, make it free. Kansas City, obviously, is one of the leaders. Robbie Mackinnon helped kick that off. But a lot of other transit agencies are not going that direction. They're saying, you know what, now that these federal funds are going away, these uh, recovery funds from the pandemic, we need to get back to charging fares because they make up a big chunk of our operating dollars that we need mm. to run the system. So, but I love this idea of hop on, hop off light rail circulator systems in downtown areas. It opens it up. You can use all the doors on your vehicles. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a light rail system. It can be a bus circulator system, but making that downtown circulator free is I think something that every city should look at um, because it, it uh, you know, again, you're focusing on who your customer is, right? It's the lunchtime. I want to get from my office down six blocks down to a deli to grab lunch and get back. I don't want to stand in line yeah. for four minutes of my 30 minute lunch break to, uh, to get on, on the vehicle and drop in my token or whatever, you know, I just want to jump on the thing is moving quick. That, so that's one. Uh, I think the downtown free circulator is something that every city should look at. Number two is what you and I have already talked about. Come on, why can't we do some high-speed rail, uh, higher <laughs> speed? We, we need to figure out a way to make this happen, right? We're a great yeah. country. Canada and America are great countries. We should be able to figure out how to do higher-speed rail. Inner city, we're not talking within a city. We're talking between cities. Intercity. Just like they're doing in Florida right now. I mean, they're about ready to open up to Orlando, and then they're looking at doing – uh, you know, from Vegas to LA. And and uh, so maybe we have to just do it with the private sector. I don't know. The public sector doesn't seem to be able to get it going yet, I, but I'd love to see that. You say, what could I like to bring here? That's it. I'd like to see better signage hmm. uh, here in the U.S. We don't do a good enough job. I mean, when I was, um, what was I riding? I was riding uh, the train, I think, um, from Heathrow out to Paddington Station. And I loved it on the floor, they had painted arrows in different colors yeah. and they did to walk with them to say which train you're going to get on. And they said, you know, follow the yellow line. And uh, I love that. You know, no, we've done that. I've seen a few places do stuff like that. But if we want to attract uh, more riders to our public transit, we have to do a better job of telling them what the heck we're doing. I'll give oh, you yeah. another perfect example. So my wife and I are down in a city in Florida. I won't mention it. Uh, we were in a hotel. I was there for work. And she stayed at the hotel while I went out and did work during the day with my daughter. And she said, when I got back, Paul, there's a bus shelter and a station right in front of the hotel here. I would have loved to have taken it. But I didn't know where it went, 
I didn't know <laughs> how much it cost to ride it. And I didn't know when it was going to get here. There's no information on the, on the shelter about any of that. So, yeah. you know, people like uh, my buddy Clinton Forbes, who runs Palm Tran, have come up with an idea of just putting a UPC symbol, one of those one of those code or a QR code QR on code. every bus stop sign. And you just uh, take a picture Scan. with your phone and it takes you and it says, OK, you're at bus number bus stop number 14. The bus comes here every 10 minutes and it goes to these stops and it costs this much. Just that information, right? The who, what, where, when. We already know why <laughs> uh, I want to go. <laughs> but like, give us that information. Give us better signage so that so that mom can get on the vehicle with her daughter and ride and feel like, hey, I know what's going on here. So those are, and, and then let's throw on there a little more friendly help. Come on, people, yeah. put some friendly faces out there. Even if you have to hire contractors like we did in Baltimore, we hired a company to come in and do a lot of the stuff for us because we didn't have the employees to do it. They were doing the counts on the vehicles and all that, but we made them into transit ambassadors. So they would be friendly faces that could help people, especially right now, right? We're trying to figure out how to get more people on the vehicle. Yeah. Have a friendly face at your major hubs. I know that we're all short on staff, but I'm telling you, get the people uh, out of the offices in your transit agency one day a week. That's what I would suggest. Oh, Go yeah. in and say all the finance, uh, you know, finance is one day, IT is another day, HR is another day. And you get out there. We're going to show you how to ride our system. You need to get your own butt on a seat once in a while and ride it. But then secondly, put on an orange vest with a smiley face button on, and I'm here to help you and and provide assistance to our customers. That would do so many things, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. It would help. It would help the people who are who don't really understand, in my opinion, a lot of times the impact that the service has on the lives of people because they're off away in some office doing some planning or something. Or you know, it's all important work. I get it. The back office functions are very important, but get them out in the in the line of service. That's a big recommendation I would make. I think it would make a big difference to how the transit agency runs in the future. I can't tell you the times when we would have staff meetings after I would make everybody get out and ride. Uh, we're all going to ride, you know, <laughs> they would say, oh, you won't believe what I found out. Yeah, you won't believe, will you? Yeah. So just think about if you did that at least once a week and you rode the, the light rail system into the into your office every day and just parked there and did that and talked to customers and saw how it was really going. I think it would make an impact. So the people who work in public transit need to ride public transit some. I'm not saying all the time. I know you can't ride it all the time necessarily. Some people do. Like, you know, I've got buddies who are CEOs that, and ladies that I know that are that are riding it all the time. Oh, they are doing that, yes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, at least ride it some, have the staff ride it some, and then have them involved in the customer service component. Face-to-face no, -face with our customers. It, it, I think it's it's a very important point. If once you become a user of the system, you will start identifying the problem. And and. I can share the example of BMTC Bangalore. So Bangalore is a city in, in India, which is called Silicon Valley of India because yeah. it's a very tech city. So there, every first Wednesday, all the employee or or first of every month, all the employee need to take a public ah, transit. That's so great. no matter whether you are working in IT or operation or a CEO, everybody need to take a transit on, on first uh, day of every month or first week of every month. So it, it's, it's a great because then they come back and they say, man, these are small things we should solve. Yeah, exactly. And, and, <laughs> and they, they solve yeah. it. And you're so like, brilliant. Yeah, we've heard that from 400 customers in the last month. They've called in. But now that you experienced it yourself, then, then it's you going to get done. You, yeah. will, you will do it. You will get it sorted out. No, I think all the points you mentioned are great. And I wish, uh, you know, people who are listening to this podcast and they will take some lessons and and try to implement some of these lessons. I mean, that, that's great. Now, about your book. Like uh, you recently published a new book, which is congratulations for that, which is already a big success on Amazon. I saw, and uh, I was lucky to get a copy of that signed copy from you in LA and I'm reading that and it's, it's great knowledge. 
And uh, the title of the book is this conversation on equity and inclusion in public transportation, which is very important, uh, the way our society is shaping up. So we need to focus more on equity and inclusion. And you interview with 12 transit leaders from US. You know, but what I love uh, from that book, I read the, when I was reading it, I read the forward and opening line of the forward is mm. diversity is a fact, equity is a choice, inclusion is an action and belonging is an outcome. So that's very important. People should feel they belong to this, that, that they are part of the system. So it's a very important topic, not only for North America, I would say for whole world right now, this equity and inclusion is becoming more and more important. Would you like to share a little more about your book and about people who hasn't bought it yet? How can they buy it and what they can learn? Okay, thanks. Yeah, I thought it was an important topic to have a book on equity and inclusion. Um, I, I talk in the preface to the book about how I came to the conclusion to write the book. I only wrote one chapter other than the preface, and it is it is conversations with 20, as you mentioned, of uh, the world's leaders uh, in public transportation, most of them in the U.S., uh, one in Australia. Um, but uh, the thought is that during the pandemic, you know, we came to a different conclusion, like I mentioned earlier, right? That the yeah. reason for the reason for our existence isn't just uh, primarily commuters, but it's to do other things like produce. We can actually use an entity that's already in place to create a better outcome in society. So yeah. our transit agency, if we do it right, if we deliver the services right, and we have the right policies in place inside of our agency, we can become. Uh, internally, our own agencies can become engines of equity and inclusion, and then we can also create that in the cities that we serve. So uh, my buddy Terry White's in the news this week. Terry is yeah. uh, CEO of uh, King County Metro in Seattle, and he's announced he's retiring. I can't believe he's 60 years old. He looks like he's 45, um, <laughs> but uh, and he's, he's worked you know, 13 different jobs in the agency over his career. But he wrote the last chapter in the book, and so uh, it's a great summary of, of that topic. And so the book did go to number one on Amazon for new books on mass transit for five weeks. It's my uh, best number one bestseller I've had, uh, and um, it's available uh, as a, you know ebook or as a paperback. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, the you know bookshops you know it's, it's on twenty different bookstores online etc. Uh, published through Book Baby Publishing, and um, so uh, and it's it's I tried to keep the price reasonable. The ebook uh, made it a two ninety nine to start with, which is the lowest yeah. Amazon would let me do it. Now it's up to four ninety nine. But um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So and all my books, Jasper, have done this. I've tried to include other people, like the book you mentioned, Future Public Transportation. It's forty chapters written by forty different leaders around the world. And my first book, which is one of my, probably my favorite book out of all of them. Well, the children's book is fun too. My first yeah. book is called Full Throttle and it's career stories. Uh, there I wrote 21 chapters and then I have a chapter from nine different CEOs. And it was, I wrote it right after I was uh, finished up my term as, uh, my time as CEO of MTA. And um, it was, you know, how to get to the top and you have to go full throttle. I think I would dial that back slightly a little bit now. <laughs> After five years of reflection <laughs> after that, but it's still some great lessons about how to use meetings to yeah. pre create momentum. Um, so anyway, uh, and then the children's book uh, is a really fun book. It's a UITP actually, you know, you all got involved in it some and yeah. promote it. Um, and uh, it's a book that I wrote for my grandchildren because I couldn't find any books on the market that kind of talked about just about public transportation. You know, there's animal books, there's truck books, there's zoo books, uh, but nothing about public transportation. So I worked with an artist from India, Sudeep yeah. KP. 
And during my COVID lockdown experience, we spent five months working on it together. We had a Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning, we get together and review, you know, where we'd done the previous week and we work on some of that. And it's a fun book and they're all available on Amazon. That one's called Public Transportation from the Tom Thumb Railroad to mm -hmm. Hyperloop and Beyond. So it talks about, you know, how that it all got started. Actually, a lot of it got started right where I work, Baltimore, B&O Railroad right here in the U.S. was the first passenger rail and all that stuff. So anyway, they're all fun books. And as I mentioned, I'm, I'm doing a, uh, a next one uh, with um, CEOs about, you know, showing their um, showing their culinary skills. So here's the deal, Jasper, is that public transit has been um, so, you know, I'm considered a transit evangelist. Um, and my goal is to promote public transportation uh, and public mobility uh, and its use in society to create greater societal outcomes and to help people create mobility for their lives. I mean, I started out working for a department of aging and I can't tell you how it warmed my heart every day to go home because I was very close to the operation. You know, I had 15 employees. I was 22 years old, 23. I did it for seven years. And, uh, but I would, you know, I got a commercial driver's license. I would drive the vehicles. I set up a dispatch program. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I would go home every day feeling like I really helped you know, 400 people today improve yeah. their lives, you know, in my, and it warm. And so I still have that feeling every day about what we're doing, that it really is impacting people's lives. So, uh, but public transportation and the leaders of it largely only get recognized when something bad is happening. The media covers uh, crime on the subway in New York City, or they cover a derailment in, you know, some city, right? Or they cover a strike. But there's so much good happening good. in public transportation. And that's what my podcast, Transit Unplugged, started out as. That's what the new YouTube TV show is all about. It's yeah. showing the positive side. It's called Transit Unplugged TV. I encourage your listeners to go view it. We've got it down, short little episodes now, 12, 13 minutes long. But we focus on a city. And I decided to try to put transit in its context. Mm -hmm. It's not just uh, one thing, like I mentioned, moving people from A to B. It's it's more than that. It's it's how it improves people's lives. And so, for instance, when I was in um, at the MTA, we got the uh, MTA services on 10 different social media sites. Mm. Uh, and we had a different purpose for everyone, right? Like Twitter was for service disruptions. Yeah. Uh, you know, Facebook was longer form stories about how our employees are helping people's lives. Um, Instagram was photos of places you could take our public transit vehicles to go to. And so uh, that that growing, I work with a guy at Pulsar Advertising at the time, Alberto Gonzalez. He's actually, I've just interviewed him when I was with you in LA. I went to his offices. They do, uh, they're probably the most awarded ad agency in the country working with transit. And he's got creative ideas, you know, coming out his ears. And uh, we were working on stuff like a comic book and all kinds of stuff. So I'm just trying to take that to the next level. So yeah. in the television show, I try to include food and culture uh, and how transit fits into all that. Uh, and so the idea of the cookbook is the same thing. It's mm. to take transit beyond its confines and yeah. show show the the lives of the people involved. The you know I want to transit unplugged is all about. I don't have an agenda like you and I talked about before this show. I don't come in with a list of 14 questions I want to ask somebody. I normally use Aristotelian logic, right? The Western mind is wired to think in threes, as he said. And so it's past, present, future. Tell me about your yeah. past. Tell me about what you're doing right now. Tell me about the future. And then we have a conversation. We let it flow. I know enough about the industry where I can you know, dive down in different uh, paths as I talk to people. And people find it fascinating. It's heard now in 130 countries around the world. So people are listening to it. 
And um, so the cookbook is the same kind of thing, Jasper. It's it's to take it to the next level and to show a different side of yeah. these transit leaders. And guess I'll give you a little preview of what my goal is for the next year. For 2024, it's music. There's a lot of transit executives that are musicians. I would love to get them all together in a band and play it, play a few shows at some of these uh, transit conferences. You know, guys like Alex Wiggins, who plays saxophone on Bourbon Street sometimes. I mean, he's amazing. And, and other guys, you know, um, who have told me, hey, you know, I play this, I play that. You know, I play keyboard and <laughs> sing, and piano and sing. I've been doing it all my life. And um, so I uh, would love to do that. But that's my next year project. This year, 2023, Is it's a, all going to be about cookbook. equity and inclusion and the cook book <laughs> now probably your your dream of having a rock band will revive again and now you will have a you know rock band with all the league from transit world <laughs> it'll be mu music that moves you <laughs> music that moves you no I, I i loved your point and i think that's very important to show in fact our theme for next year uitp barcelona summit is bright light of the city so yes, we I tell love that, that public transit is like a bright light of the city. And and I think the transit leaders should be recognized because they have a very complicated job managing people, managing staff, keeping the trains running. And nobody give credit when things are going right. Everybody start criticizing and saying bad thing when something yeah. went wrong. So, so great. You're doing great service. Now, this is my last question. And, okay. and you actually mentioned that, that why you wrote this children's book. And it's actually related to that. What I want to ask you is because... You know, the public transit system in North America is viewed very differently compared to other parts of the world. It's generally seen as a welfare scheme. I was recently reading a newspaper and it was saying that public transit system is kind of a welfare scheme because mostly people who can't afford to drive should use public transport. And which is sad because if you look at Europe, if you look at Hong Kong, if you yeah. go to Singapore, Japan, you know, that's it's it's only way to move around the city. If you really want to enjoy the city, the public transit is the best way to move around. In fact, last week, uh, uh, not last week, I think it's like a couple of months back, Hong Kong launched their new train and people just went there just to enjoy the first ride. You know, there was a crazy rush to enjoy the first ride because people yeah. want to enjoy like Elizabeth line in London. Right. People were just going there just to enjoy, you know, to, to experience. Now you're so passionate about public transit. You mentioned the other travel evangelist. You want to spread this message of peace and love and public transit. How do you think you can pass on this passion to young generation? I would love that your passion can be copied and, and shared across the world to young generations. So how you think that can be done? Yeah, we have to put it in their mind, right, from, from a younger age, that public transit uh, can be integrated into their overall life. It should be seen as, you know, a, nor a normal, regular thing to do. Yeah. One way to do that would be to, you know, uh, I, I don't want to be self-promoting, but, uh, you know, get the children's book that I've, I've and give it to your grandkids or your kids and and walk them through it. Just familiarize themselves with public transportation. It's got beautiful pictures in it. It talks about, you know, this is what a light rail vehicle is, a tram vehicle. This is how the this is how the vehicles in San Francisco go up those hills and explains it all uh, and makes it fun and interesting. It's pictures of children on the vehicles so they can see themselves through the eyes of these kids on the vehicles. So I think normalizing it. Uh, is one way. And like you said, here in the US and Canada, maybe we haven't normalized it enough. Maybe we haven't brought our children with us enough on it. We see it as a way to get downtown to our job, but yeah. not as a way for children. The second thing is just, is just that. We need to take our children with us. Uh, mm -hmm. I've always taken my kids with me on the Metro and DC, especially, which I've used a lot, you know, to go downtown to the museums and all. 
We don't drive down there. We stop at uh, New Carrollton. We get on the vehicle and we ride the train into the city and we get off and at the, uh, you know, at the Smithsonian or whatever. And we're going to do that so yeah. that they feel, oh, this is how it works. And I explained to them, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go over here. We're going to buy a pass. We're going to, I want you to tap it. You tap it and go. Yeah. So we can, those kind of things. So, it, you know, as, as a young person, you know, preteen, we can get them used to that. And then I think as kids get into um, high school, uh, my buddy, remember uh, Phil Washington had this idea of doing a school for transit. But I think it's important for us to show young people how public transit really is uh, cutting edge technology and interest yeah. them in the technology side of things. Kids want to do something cool with their career. Hey, it's not just being in, in, and let me tell you, being a bus driver, bus operator, a mechanic are cool jobs now. But you know what else mechanics are doing now? Since we're going a lot of electric, look, you'd be on your laptop all day working on all this stuff here. Or, you know, there's IT, there's, there's HR, there's and... finance, there's all kinds of jobs you can do. And the technology is really cutting edge that we're using in transit, probably more so than almost anywhere except medicine. I heard somebody say one time, and I think I agree with that. So fascinate them with that. Those are some things yeah. I would do with children. Yeah. So thank you, Paul. I mean, I fully agree with you. I mean, the young generation need to be attracted and connected with the public transit. And and when the transit agencies, I mean, I spoke to some transit agencies, they are facing big challenge to attract the young talent. And I think the best way to do it to connect them, show that how public transit can serve the society. And in fact, I tell everybody that public transit is like a religion. Once you in, it's very difficult to go out of it. You you just be part of it. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people I know have what they call fallen into it. You know, it wasn't like something they planned to do. Yeah. But once you get into it, uh, it it appeals to uh, you know the better angels, as they say, inside of us, and uh, and we see how we, you know the work that we do with our lives can actually make a real difference, in a way that a lot of other jobs I don't think will. Um, yeah. You know, and to me, public transportation, especially in context for our times. Um, so, what have we been experiencing for the last two years? Lockdown. Yeah. What is the antidote to lockdown? Mobility. mobility. What do we provide? Mobility. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. Thanks. That's yeah. a great point. That's a great point. Uh, opposite of lockdown is mobility. And that's what public transit do. Uh, yeah. So you should come and join. Now, thanks so much. We had such a great discussion on mobility, future of transport, and uh, and about the books and all. But now I end my interview generally with this rapid fire question round. And uh, I asked five questions <laughs> to my guests and so that they can answer quickly and I can know more about them. So if you are ready, I will, I will just start. Shoot. Okay. So my first question, if you are not in public transit or technology space, what other profession you would have selected? Media or politics. Media or politics. Mm -hmm. And you, you are part of that. So I can see I, that. Yeah. <laughs> I was able to uh, yeah, do a little bit in each. Yeah. And, but I would make that my full-time gig probably if I wasn't doing this. And I hope to continue to turn this into more media uh, and then engage with, uh, you know, government uh, through government what we're doing. Yes. Yeah, so so you, you'll live your dream. Uh, That's right. In a different That's right. way. Medaxo is letting me do it. Thank you. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> now, First question was easy because I know this question will be very difficult for you. You travel all around the world. Which is your yes. favorite city in the world? So I've got three. Uh, I think uh, I love Melbourne. Melbourne, Australia is just yeah. a one. And, and by the way, I think it's one, the you know best livable city of seven out of the last 10 years or something like that, major cities. But I love it there. You know, for nothing else, all the different types of coffee you can get. It's just <laughs> phenomenal. Uh, here in the U.S., you know, a city that my wife and I really enjoy is Delray Beach, Florida. 
Uh, it's near Palm Beach. Uh, my friend Valerie Nielsen is the head of the transportation planning agency there. And um, her husband is the guy that does my filming for me. Um, they live right down that way. And so we've been down there a couple of times and I just love Delray Beach, Florida. And then lastly, for transit, I think uh, another great city is London, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where, where uh, Andy Lord is now and Andy Byford was. Uh, they just do it right in so many ways there. Um, and, you know, I was just there. I was there twice in the last uh, couple months for various events. Uh, my company had a big event. Um, and then uh, and then I went for a conference that I spoke at. And both times I, you know, got on transit and, you know, just hung around the bus stops. I wanted to see what it felt like. Um, and, uh, you know, I talked to leaders of TFL while I was there and, uh, they just, they have a great team of leaders who are yeah. been there for a while. They're focused on what they're doing. They're cutting edge, they're advanced, but also it's, it's what you said a minute ago. It's seen as part of everyday life there. Everybody's yeah. riding it from every, every, uh, phase of life. I love it. And, uh, so I, 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 um, so those are my three cities, Melbourne, Delray Beach, Florida, and London. These are great choices. Uh, I mean, be, I've been to a couple of them, so I, I can do that. Yeah, yeah. Now, which city has the best transit network in the world? Yeah, so I haven't been to, you know, Russia, China, or Japan. And I understand that all three of them have some amazing transit. Uh, so, but, but of the countries that I visited, I would say Vancouver, Canada has a tremendous yeah. transit system. They actually won Aptos award last year. And my friend, Kevin, uh, Quinn. you know, Quinn is head there. He was our planning director and CEO of MTA after I left, they've got a great transit system here. And then of course, over in Europe, out of all the cities that I've rode the systems, I, I like London's, I think they're, they're some of the best. I, I, I mean, these are great choices, but at the same time, I would strongly recommend you to visit uh, Tokyo, Japan to see oh, yes. the I'd rail, like to do rail that. network they have. And uh, some of the city in China, man, they have built uh, such a great integrated yeah. system, which is which is great to see. When I was a county administrator in Queen Anne's County, this was 15 years ago, maybe, we did a sister city relationship with Suzhou, China. So I got mm. to visit uh, Shanghai and um, we rode the high-speed rails. The first time I ever rode it. I mean, real high-speed rail, yeah. you know, yeah, 300 yeah. miles per hour. And it was just amazing. So yes, I've, I have seen what they've done there. It was quite a while ago. I imagine it's even more advanced now. Oh, yeah, yeah. They are quite advanced. They are quite advanced. So good. Now we will do some UITP event and invite you as a speaker or <laughs> as a yeah, I'm looking there. forward to Barcelona, by the way. Yeah. A UITP event in June is going to be phenomenal. Likewise. You know, we're looking to have you there. Now, my next question is, uh, what one thing you do you wish you should have learned early? You mentioned boating. some of the thing already, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. boating. I wish I'd been a boat. I live right on the water. I never really learned how to be a boater. You know how to. I haven't got my license or anything like that. But that's kind of a funny answer. But my, uh, but because it's very relaxing when I'm out yeah. on the boat, in the water. I love being on the water. Lots of ideas flow there. But no, the the kind of lesson I wish I'd learned is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. I think so often we are so focused on you know what's the very best that we're not willing to compromise. And we've lost the art of compromise in America, I think, politically, everywhere else, you know. Uh, I'm a strong believer in getting everybody in the room, working it out. And you may not be able to get a conclusion everybody agrees on, but you can get one that most people agree on. It's what Lincoln said, right? Yeah. And uh, and so we can't let this perfect ideal be the enemy of the good. People say sometimes, hey, it's good enough for government work. I think that's what they're talking about. I hate that analogy because, you know, you want government to do things right. But um, that's my lesson. I think I think this is a lesson for everybody. To be honest, uh, I follow this lesson in life because sometimes you can't be perfect in anything, you yeah. know, everything. So you need to just take your shot and go for it rather than waiting for things to be perfect. 
That's right. Yeah. You can't wait for your boat to come in, as they say, you know, you have to be willing to go out there and work for it and take choices, make choices that may not be, um, like I said, they may not lead to perfect outcomes. So, yeah. you know, the lessons I learned from failing, uh, running for office, being fired from, from jobs, pushed out all those lessons I've integrated into my life. And it's made me resilient that even in failure, even in, you know, what would be considered failure, you can grasp victory out oh, from yeah. the jaws of defeat. Uh, and it may not be the perfect of what you wanted, but it's good enough. Take it, man. Just go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Don't you can wait. adjust. Once you're there, you can adjust, right? You get thrown no, I, out I, of one boat, you get in a friend's boat, and then you take that for a while and you go somewhere else. Life is a journey. You know, it's not just about the destination. Yeah, no, I, I was recently post one message about the metro guy from Doha. I don't know if you read that story. There was a metro guy who was just di giving direction to people about the metro in Doha uh, during the World Cup. And he became such a popular guy because people loved the way he was telling people where is the metro. So sometimes you just need to love what you're doing. Don't right. wait to, to do what you will love because sometimes what you do, you will start loving it. Yeah. It's, uh, I heard it said one time, I like it, bloom where you're planted, right? Uh, right where you're at. Do it. I've got a chapter in my book about that, right? Don't despise a day of small beginnings. Do what you what you're learn where you're at, right? So if you're down in the bowels of the ship, shoveling coal in there, I'm just watching this new show, <laughs> 1899, about all these guys shoveling coal in this ship. You know, hey, learn about how the ship operates down there. That's yeah. important. Then you can go to the next job and work your way up to being a captain, maybe. You know, yeah, Terry White. You know, he started as a the telecom operator in the in that's right. the King County Metro, and he became the CEO. So that's an inspiring story how you can rise uh, within the organization. Now, this is my last question. If you okay. can change one thing in life, what would it be? I would say I wouldn't have let myself gain all the weight I did in my <laughs> 40s. Seriously. Uh, I was working on the road for seven years. I worked, uh, you know, I drove an hour and a half to work, an hour and a half back. I ate all three of my meals on the road mm -hmm. um, uh, during the week. And I gained eight pounds a year for like 10 years. And, uh, you know, I've, I've lost, I lost 50 pounds last year. Now I put about a dozen back on. I'm trying to get them off, but you know, your metabolism slows down as you get older, right? Once you get into your forties, I noticed my metabolism slowed down. I, I couldn't eat what I used to eat and not exercise. And so that is one thing I would change in life is I, I would have, uh, taken note of it and taken action earlier. It was very difficult to lose 50 pounds <laughs> and it's, it's not easy now. I mean, I've just lost seven in the last month and, uh, it's not easy, you know, your body, it, it, it takes longer to adjust and to adapt to what you're doing. And so, yeah, take care of your body once you hit 40. No, that's, that's a lesson for me now. You know, I need to reduce my weight. So I'll take it very seriously Yeah, <laughs> because it, what you mentioned, it, I it sneaks up on you. It doesn't come all at once. Right. And it's so slow. It's like, you're the frog in the pot, you know, Aesop's fable. Right. And yeah. it's turned up uh, the, my boss, uh, my big boss at, at Medaxo told me his name is Bill. He said that that's a lesson he's learned in the last few years. You know, he didn't really take care of himself very well. He was on the road all the time. And, uh, and then he, then he had a health scare and then he's like, you know what, I got to take this seriously. And he does now he's dramatic change his life and make sure that he takes time to work out, you know, even when he's on the road and all that stuff. And it's a good lesson. No, I, I think it's a, it's a good point to end with is like, take care of your body. The healthy body will have a healthy mind and healthy mind mean healthy society. No, thank you so much, Paul. I really enjoyed, really loved our conversation. I mean, it was like one of the fun conversation for me and so many lessons from your experience. Thank you, Jasper. It's been an honor and a joy to be with you. I think your new leadership, uh, 
uh, at UITP here in North America um, is great. I've had a good time, fun time working with your predecessor who's still around, I know. And uh, Andy, he's going to be in my cookbook, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, uh, but the guys at UITP, I think here in North America and America, you don't get enough credit. I mean, around the world, you are the agency. You know, you're the big, you're the big uh, transportation association here. It's APTA and CTAA, but you all play an important role in helping to. Um, transpose those lessons around the world to us here. And I know you have a relationship now with APTA, which is wonderful. Oh, yeah. uh, and I I really appreciate my uh, engagement with you. I think that I went to the show, the big show you guys had, I think it was three years ago before the yeah, pandemic in in, in Stockholm, and it was just phenomenal. I mean, bigger than anything I've ever been to in transit. So I can't wait. And I, of course, I did the one in Dubai earlier this year, uh, which was great. That was the Man, first I kind of big thing back where we were getting people back together. Uh, 1,200 people there, I think it was. It was wonderful. And um, you've got great leadership. Mohammed is a wonderful man. Mohammed Mezgani, the head of your oh, association. Yeah. And great teams. Uh, Sylvan, who I've worked with in other projects through uh, North American Transit Alliance. So it's an honor to be on your program. I look forward to continue to work with you and with UITP in the coming years. Oh, same, same. Likewise, uh, the, Paul, great. Uh, thank you for your support. And and we look forward to seeing in Barcelona. That will be even the, the biggest one you have yes. seen so far. <laughs> so, so great. You guys to... are expecting like 10,000 people, right? Or more? Yes. It'll be, yeah. it'll be one of the biggest show we That's are amazing, expecting man. for the public. Yeah. June, thank the you so first much. week of June 2023. Make plans if you're listening to this. You should come yeah. join us. Thank you so much. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, 4th to 7th of June next year in Barcelona. So happy to have everybody there. Thank you so much, Paul. Wish you good luck. Uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll be inviting some other inspiring guests in the coming week. You can subscribe to this podcast online to get the notification for the next episode. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to give us a five-star rating as it will help us to spread our message. If you have any feedback or suggestion for this podcast, please do write to us at info at the rate mobility-innovators.com. I look forward to see you next time. Thank you.